Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have another founder from Startup Nation. I mean, it's amazing, you know, like what a what a machine of a country producing like incredible founders, you know, unbelievable. So today, you know, we're definitely gonna be learning, you know, when things work out, where things don't work out, you know, ups and downs, fundraising, you name it. So I guess without further ado, Yuri Marchand, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Alejandro. So originally from Startup Nation, Yuri. So how was life growing up in, in Israel? Life growing up in Israel. So, you know, it was for me kind of normal. And I tried to think about what normal means. And I think normal for a person growing up in Israel means like what you see on television and American sort of culture. It kind of felt somewhat similar. Um, I know some people may be surprised, but living here is kind of similar to what you would see in an traditional normal american tv show that's amazing i mean for you <laughs> talking about tv shows i mean maybe you got bored of tv shows because you started with computers at seven so what happened yeah no i i, I did both i want to say you know back then we didn't have uh, a lot of variety so it was um when i was a kid a lot of television and uh, a lot of computer games and then it started being more computer games and uh, less television but for me like as a kid i think um whenever a new game came out we used to play it all the time and grind it until there was nothing to do anymore and then just wait for the next one to come up. And it seems for some reason that the music, you know, it, it kind of like opens up, you know, big time, you know, the creative juices that we have yeah. in us. And for you, yeah. music, you know, it's a big deal. So, so what got you into music? I think my parents made me <laughs> go to a flute lesson or like a flute course when I was in second grade. And this is uh, kind of when I started playing music. I always listened to music. I always enjoyed listening to music as a kid. I know uh, my mother used to tell me uh, as a two-year-old, I think I used to be obsessed with this record from this Spanish guitarist, Paco singer, Lucia. David Broza. Oh, no, yeah. not, but okay, he, he's, he's a local. He, so he lived in Spain, uh, probably not as good as uh, Paco de Lucia, but still a very good guitarist and a singer, sings in Hebrew. And I was obsessed with his music and so always liked music. Didn't really want to play the flute, but um, my parents made me. So I started doing that, switched to guitar when I was in fifth grade. And then uh, that was a big part of my childhood alongside computer games. I also majored in music. 
Yeah. So, I mean, in, in, and obviously, you know, when, when you grew up enough to join the army, you know, that's what you did because that's the, that's what you do there in Israel. That's you have standard, to go through the, right. yeah, through the military. So, so in your case, I mean, out of all the areas, I mean, how do you end up landing in, in, in becoming a helicopter pilot? I think since you have to do something, you have to join the army. What I wanted to do is something uh, that I felt is significant and contributing and, um, you know, I found it to be in being a pilot. Um, and it's kind of difficult to be a pilot in Israel because everybody goes to the army and everyone wants to do something or a lot of people want to do something significant. And um, I felt like I was uh, lucky enough to be able to kind of get into this uh, training course and graduate. And, you know, I've done it uh, for a good few years and participated in some interesting things. Um, so that, that was a really good experience for me. So for how long were you piloting helicopters there? Piloting helicopters. So uh, I flew uh, for about seven and a half years on duty and then an additional like 12 years on reserve. Um, so, you know, over 2,000 hours and flew CH-53s and Bell 212s and Blackhawks a little bit, uh, wow. a few hours here and there, but mostly CH-53. It's uh, like a big so you also you also ejected the torpedoes and all those uh, missiles and stuff like that, you know, up in the air or no? No. Um, so CH-53 is this big helicopter that does okay. uh, search and rescue and special ops. So did not engage with uh, hellfires and missiles and those kind of things. Okay. I, what I mostly did was um, things like... Um, Special ops, which is really interesting, but too confidential to talk about. Yeah. Uh, but also moving troops from here and there and evacuating wounds. Got it. So let's avoid getting into classified information here, Yuri. Yeah. Because in your case, after the army, I mean, you decided that it was time to to get back into the studies, and uh, you got your computer science degree, and at the same time, you were also venturing into really understanding what would be that first company that you would bring to the world. So tell us about that process. How was that process like for you? Sure. So I, I think I always have been somewhat of an entrepreneur. And uh, as I finished my army service, I had to do the Israeli SAT. And I was really annoyed alongside my friends that there's no good vocabulary building software. And so when we graduated from the army, we built a startup that focused on helping you study vocabulary for the SATs. We didn't really understand as young entrepreneurs that the market is too small to build a successful company at. We thought that eventually we will branch out to the SATs and GMAT and those kind of markets, uh, but that ended up not happening for various reasons, uh, partly from not being in the market, but also them being really competitive markets to penetrate as a bootstrap startup. So it was a really good experience for me that I've done while, while learning computer science. But as I finished and graduated, it was time for me to do something more significant than, you know, a, re a really small niche product for a super, super small market. So in this case, I mean, what was, what was one thing that you took away with you? Because, you know, out of this uh, first company, I'm sure it was not fun, you know, to really not see it come to fruition and, and to have to close down the business. So, I mean, out of, as, as they say, you either succeed or you learn. So what was that lesson that you took away with you that you were like, you know what, one day if I go at it again, I'm definitely going to be implementing this. Yeah, I think TAM and uh, category size is really important. I think if you start an entrepreneurial venture and you want to grow it into something significant that you think about your total addressable, mar total addressable market, it's not that it doesn't make sense to do a product for a very niche market, but that niche has to be 
significant and prominent and the process needs to be very well thought through before diving into building something for a super small market. Got it. So so tell us about your next baby, your next company, which is the one that you're running now because, I mean, it took it, it didn't take that much time. So tell us about that incubation process and how you know you came up with it and how you brought it to life. So having played games, I discovered that there are needs that I need and my friends need as we play games and problems that we can solve as third-party developers. And this is what we've done when we started. Our thinking is that if we build a Swiss Army knife with all the features that you're missing as a gamer while playing games, it's going to be a very successful company that we can commercialize through media or through selling premium subscription and uh, basically build a big business out of that. It took us something like a year and a half to release our first product. Uh, by then, we would have raised something like $940,000. And um, it was really, really complicated at the same time to build a product for so many games, focus on quality, but also add a bunch of features. If you remember the Swiss Army Knife analogy, uh, not a good idea if you're a young entrepreneur building something. Um, in retrospect, we should have focused on a single feature, a single game, and just focus on quality. But that took us all the way to 2013, where we understood that it's not going to work out, and we pivoted to build a framework. So started as creators, wanted to build everything in-house, all the features in-house, everything you know, by ourselves, but then ended up pivoting to build an open framework. So then tell us about the business model of Overwolf, you know, what, ha- what it has become today. I mean, how do you guys you know, really bring value, and most importantly, how do you extract value and make some money? So we thought that it makes sense to align the way we're making money with uh, the way the partners on Overwolf make money. So our business model is basically rev share with people building content and then publishing on Overwolf, just like an app store. The reason for them to come on Overwolf is that we have a set of tools that are going to make developing gaming apps or gaming mods a lot easier. So we have like 20 or 25 or 30 different services that we provide for them so that a single person from their house can build a product that is used then by hundreds of thousands of gamers and monetizes with well over $100,000 a month, something that otherwise would have been really, really difficult to build as a single creator. So in a sense, we're a framework that provides many, many services for creators. Creators can choose how they want to monetize, whether it's through ads, donations, subscriptions, or whatever else. And we take a cut from uh, how well they monetize. Very nice. And then in terms of the team, I mean, how do you guys think about like assembling the team? Because, you know, I'm sure that with the last company too, you also learn, you know, the importance of, of team and perhaps culture. So how did you think about it? Yeah. Um, you know, especially now that we're 88, we're putting such a strong emphasis on um, culture and hiring the right people because hiring the wrong people right now are just going to kill. That's just going to kill productivity and uh, cause us to deal with uh, politics and relationships and a lot of drama instead of building uh, and being productive. I think the very early stages, it's all very natural. The company DNA is kind of built based on the first few hires that you make. And those guys or girls uh, need to be extremely strong, like uh, a SEAL team would be, you know, picked as like a fighter inside a top quality team. I think this is eventually the foundation of the company. As, as, as the company grows, maintaining that foundation becomes more and more challenging because obviously it's not the same thing sitting with everybody in the same room and then having like four or five rooms in the company 
to having like 100 rooms in the company. Um, very, very complicated. And so what we do right now to maintain uh, our culture is to um, a, a lot of repetitiveness on our core values. It's actually to write our core values down and explain them. When we onboard new team members, we explain what type of personality of an organization they're joining, what are the do's and don'ts. And uh, we're constantly evolving on that front. Uh, one of the books I've read recently, um, No Rules Rules. Uh, I don't know if you picked that up. It's uh, Reed Hastings talking about the Netflix culture. And one of yeah. the most inspiring books I've listened to on how they built. And obviously, when you listen to something like that, you take a few ideas, uh, you make them your own, and then implement them inside the company. So I've done this uh, a few times. Nice. So then in terms of capital, how much capital have you guys raised to date? So to date, 75 million. 75 million. And I know that, uh, especially during the early days, you know, it was quite bumpy. You know, three yeah, times, absolutely. you know, I was running out of way. Uh, I was running away from money. And I remember, you know, uh, if, if I don't remember wrong, the second time, you know, which was before the A round, was probably the toughest one. So what happened there? I think, you know, we were round about three and a half years in. And uh, we did a pretty good job developing a good technology, but we had zero traction. And at that point, our existing investors were like, hey, you know what? It's going to be tough for us to extend with another bridge or with another um, CLA or whatever. And so you really got to find um, the right VC to fund the company. So it was a critical point, uh, a bit of a make or break type point where we went to raise our A round, which you know today a VC would expect to see uh, product market fit, ideally, a uh, good level of traction and some good validation that everything's going to go be going the right way. And we had, uh, we, we did not have that. We did not have product market fit. We had technology. We thought that the reason we don't have product market fit is that we weren't focusing on the right market. But with the technology that we built through pivoting to the right market, we will find product market fit and continue to grow the business. So that was uh, a really scary moment. Uh, and, you know, make or break, you know, live or die, which I'm very grateful that we survived. I think I've met around about 50 different VCs, uh, all of which said no, apart from one that said maybe. And then we uh, worked hard on turning that maybe into a yes. So then, obviously, I mean, you, you've raised quite a bit of money and different rounds. You know, in fact, you just completed the very recently the Series C round. Right. Uh, but 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 in this case, I mean, you've met with many, many, many different investors. And when you meet with many or when you do several things so many times, you develop like this pattern recognition no? for, <laughs> for what's good, for what's bad. So what are some of the things that you identified that would help you to disqualify very quickly a potential candidate? This, this is a really good question. Um, I, I got to be honest and say that at the beginning, <laughs> I would take money from pretty much whoever would give me money, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't really have that mechanism back then. It was not existent. But I did back then meet um, arrogant people, I felt. You know, people who weren't really attentive to the things that I'm saying and uh, asking very naive questions. Um, not because of lack of understanding or... I think uh, me communicating poorly because they were just on their mobile phones doing emails while I was pitching. <laughs> so I think if you go, like at least my expectation is that if I'm spending time meeting someone um, and they're not engaged, that's probably a bad sign. You know, either I'm not interesting or this is just not a fit. So I think this is one. There's a bit of sense of sometimes when you meet investors of like 
sense of importance uh, that is a little bit over-exaggerated. And I really like people who are down to earth. And it doesn't really matter how successful they've been or how big their bank account is. I think that uh, sort of eye-level communication and culture is something that's really meaningful for me. And I think right now, it's one of the core uh, things that I focus on in interaction. Like, I know that I'm going to work with this person for the next decade or decades or at least a few years. We're probably going to have some ups. We're probably going to have some downs. And uh, I just want to make sure we're going to be able to communicate in the right way, that we have this rapport. But if it's constant, you know, friction and all that, then it's probably not worth the time and the effort. So then in your case also, I mean, what what were some of the things that, um, because because going from a seed round to a series C, I mean, it's, it's different. Different expectations, different profiles or different skill sets that you're looking for. Also, like different things that they're expecting from you. So yeah, how so. have you seen this shift from one financing cycle to the next, all the way to the Series C? So I think for us, the Series A was the most difficult funding round. Series B was in the context of a broad, it was led by Intel Capital and we were doing this project with Intel and it all made sense. So we didn't really do a proper process. Um, so it ended up maturing into a round as part of a business deal. And then Series C was the easiest funding round. We basically made a decision about uh, in October, like mid-October last year, that we're going to do a funding round, and we ended up signing a term sheet about a month later. The reason is uh, validation, and you're right. Like in a seed investment, you're investing in the team. You're always investing in the team, uh, but pretty much a team and the deck because there's no, there isn't a lot of validation beyond that. And then. The more funding rounds that you do, the more validation is expected from you to drive as a business. And if you're you know, growing your engagement metrics, um, you're monetizing, maybe you're profitable, and you have a really big total addressable market, you know, it's going to be a pretty easy funding round for you, I think. So this was my experience, right? Uh, the C round was the easiest one in terms of the amount of people I had to talk to, uh, the number of yeses, and the ability to actually close around with really amazing investors. So if you if you were able to because obviously Series C the easiest one Series A the toughest one, what would you if you could go back in time? Is there anything else that that I mean anything that you would tell that younger self on how to perhaps make that hard round into something easier and smoother? <laughs> I think it's it's interesting. I would tell a lot of things to my younger self, uh, but I think a general thing I would tell my younger self is that there are no silver bullets. Sometimes as a young entrepreneur, you know, you look for that thing that is going to solve and figure out everything. I would tell myself that it doesn't matter really, and it doesn't really exist. And what matters is uh, persistence and incremental improvements. Uh, that's one. Uh, with regards to the funding round, um, I would tell my younger self back in the C days to not try and capture everything, just focus on really a really narrow value proposition and make it at super high quality. And, you know, instead of spray shooting to like everywhere and hoping that some bullets will hit. And in your case, I mean, what was that day? Because th 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 there's a few really special days for you. I mean, one of them, you know, definitely launching the app. And then mm -hmm. the other one was generating revenue. So, right. you know, it's funny because now people, there's a lot of people that are only thinking about, hey, we got to grow, we got to, make this thing a success and you know they just leave revenue aside i mean i think right. that ultimately you're building a business you're not building a non-for-profit so how was that day like when for you and you're like wow look we're, we're making money on this 
Yeah, I think that was a super material moment in the life cycle of the company because you're right. Like, I mean, it's one thing to be an experienced entrepreneur and a businessman and know that you're going to monetize because you've already done it in the past and then to see it again. All right, you've done it again. Great. But it's a whole different thing to see your idea come to fruition and then to commercialization. For me, it was extremely rewarding. You like you look at the screen and you can't believe you're monetizing this thing and revenue goes up and up. And we have done monetization when we already had engagement. So we had the ability to start it off on only like 10% of the users and then increase it to 30%. And then the growth in revenue is also quite impressive because you're kind of controlling it. So I think all of that was a really sort of fulfilling and important and uh, this peak moment in building the business because at that point you know that what you're building is sustainable and it's real and now it's your duty to keep on iterating but you know this anxiety that you sometimes have with you know your bank account uh, and the money going down and down and down getting close to zero and have experienced that getting this you know situation in which you're actually generating cash was very really special for me so was that the time where where you realized hey we're gonna we're going to survive, we're going to make something exciting out of this, or, or when was that time? So I think one of the most important times were when we've launched our first app on Overwolf and actually saw product market fit as it happens. Product market fit, sometimes people ask me, how do you know you have product market fit? And I'm like, you know, when you look at the data, you know, you can define it by mouth to down ratio and day, whatever, one, seven, 30 retention. Um, and kind of seeing the retention curve, not meaning zero and whatever, like there are multiple ways to define it. But if you need to ask, hey, do I have market fit or not? You, you may not. Um, but like we really felt it when this happened. And I think that was a really special moment. Is that because things are all of a sudden like flying off the shelf? Is that, is that kind of like that? It's because kinda... we've, we haven't seen an incremental change. We've seen like a dramatic change. We went from... Uh, let's say X in terms of retention to 10X yeah. over a single launch of a single feature. And then wow. at that point, you know, okay, you know, our hunch was right. We want it for ourselves, but actually there are other people that want it as well. And therefore there's product market fit and it's going to succeed. And let's iterate in quality and make those incremental improvements. That's amazing. So as we are talking, I mean, we were talking about you know, deal making and now continue on the path of, 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 of making money. But now, you know, still on the transactional side, I mean, typically, you know, at this stage in the game, you know, like we, we would talk about, you know, acquisitions on the sell side, but, you know, in your case, you know, it was on the buy side because you actually completed the acquisition not long ago of CourseForge, which you bought mm -hmm. out from Twitch. So, so how did that come about and, 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 and what was the reasoning behind that? Sure. So in Overwolf, there are apps and there's mods, and we started working on our mod strategy, although it's something that we wanted to do back in 2014 or something, but I didn't want to repeat the mistake of trying to do too much at the same time. And so we were really focused on our app side of the business and then started focusing on our mod side of the business back at the beginning of uh, 2020. And then as we map the market and the different players we wanted to get in front of our different uh potential competitors and at that point once we reached out to curseforge we understood that twitch was looking to sell the business unit and we participated in kind of the bidding process for um, acquiring curseforge and happily they picked us so that was that was a fun moment and and in terms of um of culture and building a team because you know as we're thinking about you know 
acquisitions, I always think about integrations and right. integrations is, is all about people. So as you're thinking about people, I mean, how, how do you guys think about culture there at Overworld? So with regards to the acquisition, it was actually an asset purchase. So we didn't have the people element in an acquisition. Okay. And so it was an asset purchase. We worked with the team at Twitch to do the integration. Uh, they've been extremely helpful on helping us understand all the different bits and bytes of the business. And we were able to integrate it successfully. Um, we haven't yet done, you know, big acquisitions of taking an external team and making sure they're, you know, a good culture fit. But at the same time, I agree with you, like saying let's do an acquisition is way easier than getting it done. And the fact that the business is doing great uh, from like an engagement standpoint or a monetization standpoint doesn't mean that the integration is going to work out uh, because if culture is not going to be uh, like if the core culture and the fundamentals are not going to be a fit. It's probably not going to work out for whatever reason. So, so yeah, like being in a position where we are looking at different companies that we want to acquire, the interaction that we have with the people, the common language, the shared values, how they approach things. Uh, if it feels like it's not going to be a good thing, it almost doesn't matter how good the business is. It's probably not going to be a good decision to acquire them. Too much of a headache. Yeah. And, and, and let's say in your case, I mean, as we're thinking about Vision 2 and and imagine you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of Overwolf is fully realized. What does that world look like? I think it's a world in which there is a new profession. The profession is called a modder or an app creator. And it's common in every game that there is a community of creators that is building content around this game. It's as simple as that. Just like YouTube came to the point where they built a new profession called YouTuber. We want to do the exact same thing for people building mods around games and apps around games. That's amazing. So, so in this case, as uh, as you're thinking about, you know, also looking back and and looking straight ahead too. There's one question that I typically ask the guests that come on the show, and 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 you you touched on this a little bit. You know, when we were talking about the fundraising and what would you have done if you could have done the the Series A in a different way to optimize the chances, but Let's just let's just think about like the 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 journey as a whole. I mean, if you could go back in time and and have a chat with that younger self that was, you know, thinking about launching the first company, what would that be? What would that advice be that you would give to your younger self before launching a company? And why? Given all the stuff that you've learned. I mean, whether it was shutting down your earlier business, whether it is, you know, now being at it for eleven years and, and raising all this money and having this impact. I mean what would you tell your younger self? Think long-term is probably one of the most important things I would tell my, young, my younger self. I think that every time in the life cycle of the company that we thought and acted long-term, it paid off big time in the future. And sometimes as young, particularly as a young entrepreneur and having not seen the cycles of thinking long-term and the impact that they could do, you're like, you're constantly focused on short term. You constantly like monitor the competition. Oh my God, they've done this feature. Let's do it right away. Or you want to do a PR stunt just to get a bunch of uh, coverage so that maybe you can get an additional $100,000 from a senior investor. Sometimes you have to do those things because it's about survival. But when you can afford to think long term, I think that is the most important advice I would give my younger self. And in terms of, also, uh, learning and, and execution, I mean, what would you say has been a book that you wish you would have read sooner? 
so first, you know, I, I think we live, we're very privileged to live in an era where there are so many amazing books you can either, either listen to or read because there are tech entrepreneurs that have built companies in the past like five decades. And those guys just sat around and took their lessons and wrote really good books. Uh, one of the most special books to me are uh, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Because uh, I think it's dysfunctions in teamwork is something that almost by definition you're going to experience as an entrepreneur. If you haven't, you must be one of those like unicorns, but super, super not unicorn from like a billion dollar company standpoint, just like super unique and lucky. Um, but you're going to experience uh, challenges. And I think this book is amazing about talking uh, about these challenges, but also it's a fun book to listen to. Uh, or a fun book to read. It's also like really interesting, really well written, and I, I think it's not as popular as you know some of the No Rules Rules or, or you know some of the other books uh, that are out there right now. So I would really recommend uh, the Five Dysfunctions of a Team. I mean, I I've heard you talked a lot about you know culture uh, and and a lot about books that have to do with culture. Mm -hmm. Why is culture so important? Why do you think that the people that are listening or or watching, you know, why why should they care so much about culture? I think, you know, w when you start your company, then uh, your ability to survive is based on the cash that you have, roughly. When you grow a company, your ability to survive and thrive is just based on your culture. The set of values that unite the folks working, your, you know, there are terms like hedgehog concept or like the things you do the way you do. Um, how you build your culture to be the best in the world in that particular thing that you do. And I think that's going to be critical as, as you grow a company. Maybe not when you're a small team, then you need cash and you know it's four people, five people, whatever. It's mostly you anyway with your founding team or with like the core team members initially. But as you grow, um, you know, instead of money, this becomes culture. And I think that's the most important thing that otherwise would... Um, just you know lead you to failure and i think the the huge failures that we've seen in tech companies that we thought are going to stay forever are fundamentally first and foremost culture failures because of either arrogance or not asking the right questions or being too like conservative so people from the field are concerned to kind of just express themselves uh, in front of rank you know just cultural elements that eventually cause those uh, titans to fall so I don't know that was a long answer, but I think uh, that's mostly it. I love it. So Yuri, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Um, just my name, URI at overwolf.com. Uh, that would probably be the best, the, the best way to reach out to me. Amazing. Well, Yuri, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you very much for having me, Alejandro. Had a great time. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.